I love the book of Acts. I've had the opportunity to teach through the book of Acts uh, on one occasion over uh, several weeks. And uh, I'm looking forward to, uh, Lord willing, having the opportunity here to, to preach uh, a series through the book of Acts. And it's truly, it's truly amazing when we read through the book of Acts, it's truly amazing to see how God took his people through trials and persecutions, through what we might even consider uh, birth pangs or the, the, the early stages of the church, infancy, toddler, you know, in a sense, junior stages of the church. And it's incredible to see God do his work through God's people. People that, by and large, were just average, ordinary, or in many cases, below average, or in some cases, even for the apostles being tax collectors, the off-scouring of the earth, and yet God changed them and God used them, and the apostles are described as having turned the world upside down for Jesus Christ. And I just think it's, uh, it's, it's amazing uh, what God has, has done uh, through his people. And it's, it's often, as we read in 1 Corinthians, it's God taking what the world considers foolish and then making them wise for him, for his glory, and for the furtherance of God's kingdom. And it's often the, uh, the, the ones who, that the world would describe as foolish are the ones that God is using because they have humbled themselves before him and they're willing instruments in the Lord's hands. So it's just amazing sometimes to see how God uses his people. We're sinners saved by grace. But when we're submitted and we're willing and we're humble servants of the Lord and willing to be led by him and willing to sacrifice and go forth with his strength, it's incredible what God can do in spite of us. And, and even with the, the little bit that, that we have, God can multiply it. And uh, we see that here in our study of the church. So Matthew 16 is where we have been the last few weeks. But then we're going to go to the book of Acts. And we're going to do a little bit of an overview of the book of Acts in order to see how God led his church, how God grew his church in the early Stages of what we would refer to as the New Testament age or the age of grace or the church age. I want to start, though, with a little bit of humor, uh, if you don't uh, mind me having just a, a little bit of, of humor here. Um, you'll see here on Babylon B, I enjoy the Babylon B, I get their daily, their daily email, and uh, you see the headline Man skipping church, secretly judging all the heathens he meets, don't go to church. And then you can read there, local man, Alan Roddick, skipped church this morning to go out for a nice brunch and spent the whole meal secretly judging all the heathens at the restaurant who don't go to church. <laughs> I can't believe how packed this restaurant is during the church hour. It just shows how messed up people's priorities are, said Mr. Roddick, shaking his head. You look how many people aren't setting foot in God's house, and well, it's no wonder America is going downhill. Mr. Roddick had planned on going to church this morning, but the pay-per-view fight went pretty late last night. I had already paid for the fight, so I had to stay up, exclaimed Mr. Roddick. And we finished off the beer in the fridge with two hours worth of fights still left, so we had to switch to whiskey. 
So I really had to make an exception and skip church today for a massive brunch. Next to Mr. Roddick sat a group of hungover millennials in workout clothes who clearly had no intention of going to church. It really, it's really sad to see young people wasting their lives in debauchery like that. They probably don't even know it's the Lord's Day, said Mr. Roddick. And it's even more disappointing to see families here with their children. Don't they know what path they are putting kids on by not raising them in church? I'm sure glad my parents raised me right. At publishing time, Mr. Roddick had decided to go to an evening service after reading this startling report. And then the report goes on and talks about the lack of attendance and the lack of emphasis on godliness and on God in our, in our culture. So a little funny, a little humorous, it makes a point and uh, it reveals something about our culture, doesn't it? Because we'll have plenty of time for ourselves six days a week and then we complain that God actually could possibly ask that we give him one day of the week, that we give him a little bit of time. I mean, don't, doesn't God know how busy our schedules are, how much entertainment that we need, and how much on and on and it goes? We, we, need, we need, I mean, surely, God, you could give us six and three quarters of, of a week, right? You really expect us to give you one full day, and, and, and have a, a Sabbath principle in our life. And again, we're not uh, following the Mosaic Law and the Sabbath being Saturday, and we, we don't need to get off on a, on a rabbit trail there, but the, the Sabbath principle of giving the Lord one day of, of the week, giving Him a, 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 a weekly uh, offering when we have six days for ourselves, and we'll stay up as he was joking here, in this Babylon Bee article, staying up late on Saturday night, and no wonder we can't get up and go to church on Sunday morning, and all the excuses that come with it. So unfortunately, this is uh, too typical of people and their view of the church today. But let's talk about, for a few minutes, a church growth pattern. Now, this is not going to sell big marketing projects at the local church marketing store. This isn't going to sell on LinkedIn. I realize that. I realize that I'm not going to be marketing a church growth package and selling it for $99.95 in two easy payments of $39.95 if you buy now in the next 15 minutes and then the ticker goes down on the commercial. And then the next commercial, 15 minutes later, starts at the same number and ticks down. You've seen those, the, 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 pay, the pay for on the TV ads. Anyway, I'm not going to be selling a church marketing package today. As a matter of fact, this probably wouldn't sell very well at all because it's, it's not flashy. It's, it's not full of a lot of pizzazz. Um, it doesn't have uh, a lot of health, wealth, and prosperity attached to it. It, it doesn't have, um, I don't know, all the gimmicks and the different things that we, we, we see. Um, as a matter of fact, it, it just seems almost too simple. And yet, this is what God has done with his church. This is how God has grown his church. Acts chapter 2 and verse 42 gives us a very, very simple, and I, again, I, I hesitate to use the word formula. Because I don't want ever to break Christianity down to formulas. 
I, I don't like formulaic Christianity. I, I enjoy I enjoy certain what's what's the the term the the, the leadership the the motivational speakers. I, I enjoy certain Christian leadership teachers, motivational speakers. I've got some of their books. I won't name any names right now, but if I named a couple of different names, you'd probably recognize them. And I think that there's value in, in those. I've, I've learned from those men. But many times, there's seven steps to this, six steps to this, five principles to... And, and, and before long, you find yourself having to flip through a binder. And okay, now, church growth 101 or leadership 101 and okay I need to do these five things I need to do these six things I need to do these seven things and it's almost like flipping through a recipe book and okay so I want coconut cream pie today and so I'm going to follow this recipe but tomorrow I want I don't know spaghetti but it's got to be baked spaghetti, and it's got to be baked a certain way with the cream cheese in it, like the way my wife makes it. It's delicious. Or I've got to have an omelet. And so I flip through the recipe, and I, and I bake up the omelet, and I put in the ingredients. And that's what, that's what happens sometimes with some of these leadership, motivational, Christian leadership, motivational speakers. You, you feel like you're flipping through a recipe book, and each lesson is another recipe for another way in which you can have a successful Christian life or a successful church or a successful whatever. And again, not that we can't learn, not that we can't have value in, in those, not that there aren't things that we, that we can't learn. Of course we can. And there's some real people skills that, in, in a very practical way, that are very, very helpful. I've, I've learned uh, some things from one book in particular by one of these men, and he has some very, very practical uh, people skills, uh, principles and practical tips that I think are, are, are very good. And uh, I've tried to, to, to practice those and emulate those. Um, but anyway, I, I don't want Christianity, I don't want church growth and the way God grows his church to turn into a set of formulas, a set of these six steps or seven steps. So we read in Acts 2 and verse 42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and in prayers. Back to verse 41. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. So we see, first of all, in God's church growth strategy, we see that the church is about saved people. The church is made up of saved people. Now, this seems too simple, doesn't it? This seems almost too basic. Well, duh, God's church ought to be made up of God's people. But this is where some church marketing strategies go wrong. Principle number one, premise number one. Again, I'm not trying to be overly critical here. We can name some of the names that I've named them, and I don't want to go... Uh, off on too much of a rabbit trail here, but there's a lot of church marketing strategies that are about appealing to the unsaved. A.W. Tozer, I read a quote this week by by A.W. Tozer, that if our worship looks more like the world and less about God, then there's something wrong with our worship. And again, I use the example of Bill Hybels quite often because 
he was so popular when I was going through seminary. And he took a survey to the Willow Creek community and basically asked a bunch of unsaved people, what do you want in a church? And then patterned his church after that. And that was a successful model for a lot of the mega churches. And it still is for, for some. And I could name other names. Dangerous. Now, another little example here. I have a problem with a church going down, and I understand there's a, a, a good motive. But there are some churches that will go down to the homeless out in the streets underneath an overpass. And they'll take their worship down to the bridge or to the homeless camp. And they'll take their worship to the homeless camp and then they'll have their service there. Okay, I understand they're trying to reach them with the gospel. But that's not church. You're, you're taking something that is uniquely for believers and you're trying to force it upon people who don't even claim Christ as their Savior. Now, I'm not saying that there can't be unsaved, that there can't be saved people, that there can't be born-again believers in a homeless camp. I'm not saying that. But I struggle with a church that takes their worship down to the bridge, the overpass, and they are saying, we're going to do church there. It's, 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 it's taking church to a group of people that are unsaved, by and large. How are they worshiping? If they're unsaved, how are they worshiping God? Again, I understand the motive. They're taking the gospel. But when they call that church and they're saying they're taking church to the homeless, I struggle with whether that is really genuine worship, whether that is really church. Because church begins with a saved group of people. Now notice in Acts chapter number two, what in a sense birthed the church? What went on from Acts, basically Acts 2 and verse number 1 until Acts 2 and verse 41? What, ha- what was going on? What, what was happening for those 41 verses? Peter's preaching a sermon. Now that cannot work. Come on. People are actually going to listen to preaching. I mean, you actually think that people are going to want to come and to hear the word of God taught? That is an effective strategy. God chose the foolishness of preaching to build his church, to grow his church, to save people? Yes. I know that that is antiquated. What we do as Brian Baptist Church with the emphasis on the pulpit ministry and the teaching and preaching of God's word, I realize that that is even antiquated for many churches today. I do more sermon prep than some pastors do. I do more sermon prep in one week than some pastors do in a whole month. And I'm not trying to be overly critical, but churches have gotten away from the pulpit. Okay, again, I'm I'm not, not, not... trying to get too carried away here, but Acts 2, verses 1 through 41, God didn't grow his church with a Christian music concert. I know that that doesn't go over well, but God did not grow his church. He did not birth his church by selling tickets to an arena 
he could have he could have sold out at this point some amphitheater, maybe even talked the Romans into opening up the Roman amphitheater or the Romans opening up some venue and they could have sold tickets and they could have had a big concert and lots of people could have come. And a matter of fact, they could have evangelized the unsaved with that. Is that, how, is that what God chose? Did God choose a Christian music concert to, to birth his church and to grow his church? He didn't. Now, again, I'm not saying there isn't a place. And there, there's another message for another day about, about music. And I'm not here to get, get all, all controversial. But we don't see the emphasis on music in the book of Acts for growing God's church. But in our culture today... You gotta have the church service that mimics a concert in order to have a church service, in order to have true worship. So when I hear a, a man say, I struggled going to my church because I got the same experience, I had the same feeling at the rock concert that I went to on Thursday night, or whatever night of the week it was. I got the same feeling, I got the same experience Thursday night that I did on Sunday morning at my church. And he said something was wrong. And he got out of that church. He said there has to be something different because I'm not experiencing anything different than what I I did on Thursday night at the rock concert. God did not grow his church. He did not birth his church by Christian music concert, by surveying the unsaved, and saying, what do you want? He, he, he didn't build his church. He didn't grow his church. He didn't birth his church by other methods. He chose to use the preaching of God's word. And if we took the time to go through Peter's sermon, it is incredible. The Old Testament references, the bringing to a point of conviction where he's actually even stating that the religious leaders, the Jews, were guilty of crucifying Jesus Christ and yet at the same time putting us all in that same category of guilty before God because our sin is the reason Christ died on the cross. We're all responsible in that sense. And he brought the sermon to a point of conviction and we read there Verse 40, and with many other words that he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Whew. <laughs> Peter was strong. Save yourselves from this untoward generation. He says, Look around at the pantheism, the polytheism, and the idolatry, and the immorality. He says, Save yourselves from this. He brought conviction home, he called them sinners. And there were a group of believers there that day, genuinely saved people. Acts 1 describes some of the early church before we see this day of Pentecost and the the birthing of the church in in, in Acts chapter number 2. But he brings conviction home. He says, save yourselves from this untoward generation. And 3,000 souls were saved. 3,000 people saved on that day. Can you, imagine, can, you, can you imagine the revival? Can you imagine the excitement? Can you imagine the enthusiasm? 
the energy in the right sense of those words for the Lord? When 3,000 people got saved, what a joy. I mean, it would be, it'd be a hallelujah chorus. We hear it at church. We pray. I've prayed all week long, certain people, all week long, who are in our sphere of influence right here at Berean. I've prayed all week long for two specific people by name who have even come to our church recently who, as far as I know, are, are lost. And they've been under the preaching of God's word. They've been under the gospel. They even have family who's been praying for them and trying to reach them with the gospel. I mean, it'll, it'll be a hallelujah chorus day if those individuals get saved today. Wouldn't that be wonderful? And there's people that you are in contact with. We're praying for people on our prayer list who have had recent opportunities to, to witness, to share the gospel. Our deaf ministry is, is expanding by the grace of God, and we're, we're going to be uh, hopefully reaching uh, some people within the deaf community who don't know the Lord, who will be willing to come to a Bible study just because they want to be with other people in their community, because they often feel very lonely and isolated. God's giving us opportunities. God's opening doors. So the church is for saved people. Our primary responsibility isn't necessarily to invite people to come to church. Though if unsaved people come to church, praise the Lord, that's great. If unsaved people come to church, that's great. They should see when they come to church that we are about God and about his word and about his glory. And there is something distinct and different about us because we are looking heavenward. Our priorities are on God and his word. And when they come to church, they ought to see that this group of people has an eternal mindset, has a Godward focus, is looking beyond themselves to Jesus Christ, who has bought them with the the price of his blood. They ought to see a distinct difference about us. But our primary responsibility is to go and give the gospel to them outside the walls of the church, though it's perfectly fine to invite them to come, but our, our goal isn't to fill our church with unsaved people and then evangelize them here. The primary place of evangelism should be outside the church. And then as they get saved, they come in. At the same time, if unsaved people are here and they get saved, praise the Lord. Acts chapter 2, there were unsaved people there under Peter's preaching and they got saved, 3,000 souls. Which takes us to verse 42 again. And they continued steadfastly. In what? In the apostles' doctrine. The apostles' doctrine. What is the apostles' doctrine? Anybody want to venture a guess? Yes. Good. The teachings they had heard from Christ, and they were then repeating. Good. Anybody else want to expand on that? It's some mysterious language. It's some mysterious code, right? It's some secret body of truth that we need to go back and try to discover, right? We as a church are here trying to figure out what the apostles' doctrine is. If we could just get that secret knowledge, that secret code, and maybe I'm failing as a pastor because I haven't led you into that secret knowledge. Is that what the the apostles' doctrine is? Of course not. The Apostles' Doctrine is essentially what? Right here, the Word of God. Yeah. The Bible. 
what we are preaching and teaching today, what we are living by today, really isn't any different than what the early church was living by. Now, we have the 66 books of the Bible. We have the written revelation of God. They were in those early first century days still receiving the written revelation of God that was eventually completed with the book of Revelation around A.D. 90 when John finished penning the book of Revelation. And he said at the end of the book of Revelation, anybody who adds to or takes away from this revelation, let the curses and the plagues of this book be added to them. He makes it very clear. Okay, He was understanding that this was the revelation of God that he was penning. God breathed words. The verbal plenary inspiration of the, of the scriptures. But there isn't a new doctrine, a new revelation. If I get up here on Sunday morning and I start to say, well, I have new revelation from God, a whole bunch of you ought to be able to just walk out because I'm not giving you the apostles' doctrine. I'm thinking myself as some apostle who's received new revelation, and then that puts me in a place of, of danger. I have no business thinking that I am receiving new revelation from God and that I am some new apostle. I don't even like to use the term apostle because I'm not. Yes, I'm a sent one called of God to preach the word, but I don't like to use the word apostle to refer to a man in the ministry because the apostles, the last one uh, to die was John. And the, the, the specific sign gifts of the apostle died off with John. And the canon of scripture was completed with the book of Revelation. Do we understand, and we'll, get, we'll, we'll come back to a little bit of church history, do we, do we understand that the Council of Nicaea or that early church, those early church councils, they didn't determine what are the 66 books of the Bible. They didn't decide that at some early church council. That's a lie that the world tries to promote. Oh, it wasn't until the council of whatever in... A.D. 300 and something. That's when the church finally voted to determine. And there's actually these other four Gospels. There's, there's, there's actually the Apocrypha. No. The early church councils, all they did was recognize what was clearly already the revealed, the written revealed word of God. All they did was recognize what was clearly already established in the early church and recognized by early believers as scripture. As those letters were being passed around, as they were being copied, it was clear the church recognized these books as the inspired word of God. The Gospel of Thomas and all the other ones, they were, the church realized those are not the inspired word of God. Derek. Yes. Right, right. There's probably two other letters to the Corinthians besides 1st and 2nd Corinthians. But the church recognized that those were just letters that were good teaching or good letters from Paul, encouraging letters, but they weren't at the level of God-breathed, inspired scripture. But my point again is they continued steadfastly, faithfully in the apostles' doctrine. The apostles, having received from the Lord Jesus Christ, having received from God, having been inspired by God and verified with the apostolic signs, 
These are the truths. This is the truth. And we see throughout the epistles, we see the truth, the word of God, all scripture, 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16. So by the end of the book of Revelation, when John's writing, anybody who adds to or takes away from, there was a body of truth that was recognized by believers, that was recognized by the church. And we, as a body of Christ, as a local body of believers, are to continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in the word of God, in the teaching and the preaching of God's word. It's so important that we as a church emphasize the preaching and the teaching of God's word. And I need the repetition of God's word. I need it regularly, consistently. You say, well, I've heard the word of God for 40, 50, 60 years. What else is there to know? Well, we're forgetful hearers. We get slow, we get lackadaisical, we get methodical, we get complacent, we get content. We constantly need to be reminded. We constantly need repetition. I hear it from my kids in, in, in studying you know, different subjects. The one in particular that I hear a lot is grammar. Well, I learned verbs when I was in, whatever, fourth grade. Why do I need to learn verbs again in high school? Because you've forgotten. Have you heard yourself talk recently? <laughs> you know, <laughs> and now everything, because of texting, now everything is an abbreviation. So I'm trying to pick up on what my kids are saying, and I'm learning that a lot of these words, they have a fuller, there's, a, there's actually a, a fuller spelling of the word. They just go by the, the abbreviation. Like, everybody is bro. Well, that's brother, which is synonym for dude, I guess. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> there's all this terminology. Why do you have to keep coming back to grammar all the way? In, and then in freshman year of college, most colleges, most liberal arts colleges, freshman year require at least one English class. At least one. Is that true still for, I would imagine, for Ivy Tech, Purdue? Okay. I'm thankful. I mean, I had to have three credits in English in college. And I hated literature class. I hated it. I'm so glad that I got to go back and do bonehead grammar my first semester of my freshman year. And then I only had one literature class first semester of my sophomore year. And I only survived that because we studied the Scarlet Letter my senior year of high school. In my literature class in college, my sophomore year, was almost entirely about the Scarlet Letter. I was like, yes! I know the Scarlet Letter because we studied it intensely my senior year. So I knew a lot of the story. I knew a lot of the answers. And I, I honestly, I didn't even read the Scarlet Letter my sophomore year of college because uh, I knew so much about it from, from high school. And I survived. I actually thank my senior uh, English teacher in high school for helping me pass sophomore English, my sophomore lit class. I couldn't stand that class. Barracuda Boone is what we called the teacher because she was so mean. Anyway, we go back and we, 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 we read those stories. We, we do those grammar lessons. That's just one example of how we have to keep coming back, line upon line, precept upon precept. I studied the book of John. I taught a whole high school class on the book of John years ago. And yet I am just learning and, and, and just excited every week as I study for preaching, for, for, for sermons. And I'm gleaning 
so much more. And it's like, how does that happen? How do we keep coming back to the same scriptures? And they continue to renew us, continue to excite us, continue to encourage us and strengthen us and, 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 and rebuke us when we need it. That's part of the, 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 the word of God and the, and the inspiration of, of God's word. The fact that it's God-breathed continues to bring us to that place of encouragement or continues to rebuke us, continues to help us and strengthen us because we need that. We go back to the same restaurants and order the same meal. Some of us are guilty of it, aren't we? Everybody knows when we walk in that restaurant, whoever the waiter or waitress is, what you're going to order. Why? Because you go to that restaurant, you got that meal. We go back and we order the same meal, we get the same thing. My kids, they, they'll eat chicken nuggets. Ten piece. Go to the McDonald's and get rubber chicken. Ten pieces of rubber chicken. Over and over and over and over again. And yet we complain because, oh my God, I, heard, I already heard that message. I already heard, I've already read, I know all about that pastor's scripture. But you go back and you eat rubber chicken, you'll go back to the same McDonald's and order the same quarter pounder. You'll go to the same pizza shop and get the same heartburn. You know, it, it, we'll, we'll, we'll do it um, over and over for physical food, but then we complain when there's spiritual food. Continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Let's never get away from that, this side of heaven. Brian needs to close its doors and sell this building if we ever quit teaching and preaching faithfully, expositionally, the Word of God. If we replace this pulpit with a little stand and get down to 20 minutes of a self-help message and an inspirational talk and a motivational message, then Brian has ceased to function as it should as a local church. Okay? Now, I know I just failed as a church marketing guru when I say that, but I believe firmly in what God's Word says about how God grows His church. And Acts 2 and verse 42 gives us a simple, basic model. And it begins with continuing steadfastly, obviously saved, and continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. What else do they continue steadfastly in? Fellowship. Being together, one another. We have a live stream. And we have sermon audio. We upload messages. And, and we do that as a service. We do that as a help. There are people probably right now who are watching live stream. And they're thankful for it. And I'm thankful for that technology. But it doesn't replace being together. That's a service. That's something that we offer to help. But it doesn't replace us being together. We see it over and over. There's multiple passages on one another. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. We can go on and on with this. And it's, it's been very obvious through COVID and the shutdown. And one of the reasons I'm doing this series is because of some of the statistics that I'm hearing, and I've said them in here several times already, 30% of the people who attended church, the average right now is 30% who attended church before COVID have never returned. There is a, a, a real issue with people attending church. And we joked around with Babylon B, but Babylon B made a good point, made a very good point at how low on the priority of this church attendance is. I, I've met so many professing Christian parents 
Oh, yeah, I want my kid in Sunday school. Oh, yeah, I want my kid in the youth group. Oh, yeah, I want my kid in the Christian school. But they hardly darken the door of church. They themselves as parents. There's no Godward orientation of the kid's life. And as they get to be teenagers and adults, it's no wonder they want nothing to do with God in the church. Because they grew up and they saw mom and dad who did not make church a priority. And if we don't come to church, ultimately the message gets sent that we don't think God is that important. Now, can I go out into the woods and worship God in in a sense out in the woods somewhere? I can pray. I can read my Bible. I can enjoy nature. But that's not church. I, I know people, they post on Instagram and they mean well. They post on social media and they talk about their worship out in the mountains and the, the rivers and the streams. And there's a, a value in seeing God's handiwork. The heavens declare the glory of God. But that's not church. There, there are people who I've heard say, well, my church is out in the woods. My church is when I'm running or walking, doing my exercise, and I have my earbuds in, and I'm listening to praise music. I've heard people say, that's my church. That's my worship. Really? So God said to the the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, let's go into the wilderness and let's all just find our place. Let's all go find our cactus. Let's all go find our little sandbank. And you all kind of worship worship God the the way you want. Is that what God said in, to the children of Israel coming out of, of Egypt? Well, that's what the Egyptians did. They worshipped the birds and the bees and the flowers and the trees and the streams. And I mean, what did the ten plagues do? God dealt with every single one of Egypt's gods. Because they worshipped all of creation instead of the creator. And God said, we're going to come together. And you're going to be led by the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day. And the tabernacle is going to be the center of camp. And the camp was centered around the tabernacle. And the furthest tent had to be within a certain distance. They could not be more than, I forget what, it, what, what the distance was. The tent furthest away from the Ark of the Covenant, from the tabernacle, couldn't be any further than a certain distance. I mean, the centrality and then the temple... Now, I know we don't have the Mosaic Law and the tabernacle and the temple. I know we are the temple of God, as dwelled by the Holy Spirit, as believers. But the principle remains the same. And we see it in Scripture. Seek first the kingdom of God. and everything, Christ should be preeminent. He is the head of the church. So, we need to be together. And it's important for us to be together. We need to see each other, rub shoulders with each other, iron sharpening iron, provoke one another to love and good works. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. The accountability. There's something about coming and meeting somebody and shaking their hand that does us good. There's something about coming together and giving somebody a hug. There's something about sitting in a pew next to somebody and opening up the Bible together and singing together. There's something about that that's unique to the church. That's different than going and cheering for our favorite team at a ball game. That's well and good. But that's not the same as, and I heard a preacher not that long ago, and I know he meant well. I know he meant well. 
But I, I was a little disappointed because it was almost as if he was taking church and he was equating it with an event like a ball game. And I, I want to be very careful as a pastor, as a preacher, that I never take and I equate worship and church with a ball game or an event like that. Because they're not the same. And I was a little disappointed. And again, I think he meant well, but it just it, it sends the wrong message because church is uniquely different than cheering on our favorite team at a ball game. So um, that's the third point. Any, any comments or questions? We're almost out of time, and I want to hit uh, the last two here real quick. Any comments or questions on that so far? Okay. And then we see the cross. We see here the breaking of bread. Now, this specifically speaks probably to the ordinances, to communion, the Lord's table, um, baptism, of course, came earlier, so saved, and the next step of obedience would be baptism. And um, verse 38 of Acts 2 speaks even to baptism. Those who had received Christ be baptized. Okay, but the breaking of bread. Now, the breaking of bread probably is a reference to the Lord's table, to communion, to the church ordinance. But understanding 1 Corinthians 11... There was a love feast associated with the Lord's table. Now, the Corinthians had abused that. They had turned it into a potluck dinner, kind of a party, you know, a church party, and had gotten away from the meaning of the Lord's table. And Paul was addressing that in 1 Corinthians 11. But we understand the need for the fellowship, and that includes sometimes a meal. And we're good Baptists. I mean, we, we, we eat. That's, that's part of being good Baptists is, is, is fellowships. And we try to do one every other month or, or uh, sometimes a little more frequently than that. But once every two to three months or, or sometimes more often. But we, we love to get together and we like to do so around food. And uh, the, the, world, the world has their places for food. Sadly, it often is accompanied by alcohol and other, other things okay, that, that don't lend itself to uh, to good social order. Sadly, the world, but the world understands getting together and having certain kinds of foods and drinks that have certain distinct associations. The world understands that. That's one of the entrapments of the world because sometimes people get saved and they're so used to having a certain group of people and having certain drinks and certain activities and they get saved, and they have to break from that group, and that can be hard. And God has saved them. So what is, what is the emphasis here? You're, we're now joined together, and we're breaking from that mold of the world and those activities and those associations, and we're coming together, and we're focusing upon the cross and the memorial of the Lord's Supper. Not transubstantiation like the Catholic Church has said, where you get grace by participating in Mass. No, it's a memorial. The bread and the juice are symbols of the cross, and it reminds us of why Christ came. It's important for us, and we'll do that again, Lord willing, on uh, the evening of the 18th. And then finally, as we close, prayer. I, I, I don't know how some of these churches, they, they ever pray together. Again, I'm not trying to be overly critical here, but... If a church has an hour and 15 minute concert slash sermon, okay, and that, that hour and 15 minutes is all they ever get together, 
and it's primarily a concert with a little sermonette, okay, if that's all they ever do to get together, how do they ever pray together? How do they ever come together for the ordinances? I know a lot of people, I've met a lot of professing Christians through the years who claim allegiance to a church, and they are on the fringes. They barely attend, and when they do, they sit in the back, or they sit on the fringes, they're out, they're in, they're out. One of the things I've always loved about Brian from early on when we first started coming and I was filling the pulpit, you all like to hang out and talk. And, and I love the fact that on Wednesday nights, we pray together. We break up into our small groups and our family groups. I love that. I grew up doing that at Eagledale as a kid. I've, I love doing that. Sometimes we share requests with each other that we wouldn't share publicly. But it's, it's, there's something really special about sitting here as we finish up and we are done praying and we hear the whispers of other people praying. And sometimes our very names are mentioned by other people. There, there's something special about that. The church came together for prayer. Acts chapter number 1, before there was ever... Oh, I, I gotta, I'll have to come back to this next week. Don't went back too far. Here we go. We'll have to come back. Sorry about all the other stuff up on top. I'll explain all that, Lord willing, next week. But notice what were they doing in Acts chapter 1 before Peter ever preached that day of Pentecost. What were they doing? They're gathered together praying. They're coming together and they're praying. And then Acts 2, they, they go out and they hear Peter preach that great sermon. It's just, it's just incredible the, the way God grows his church, the way God builds his church. It seems too simple, seems too basic, seems too ordinary. Where's the pizzazz? Where's the flash? Where's the celebrity in this? Where's the celebrity preacher? Where's the celebrity? Where's the big personality? <laughs> yes. Right. Right. Good point. Right. Yeah, it becomes a flash in the pan or whatever. Yeah. And then the music changes. Yes, that's the other thing that I've seen too, is the music changes. And then the what's that? Wrong direction. Yeah, the wrong direction, right. But then it just it just seems to keep right. And so we we end up having little churches all around based on the personality of the preacher and the band. So I like their band and I like that preacher's personality. As a matter of fact, he's got really great shoes. I mean that's been in the internet, I'm out of time. But that was one of the funniest things I saw. Sad. But there was a movement among, and even Babylon Bee made fun of it. You had to have, a, you had to, have to be a really popular preacher. You had to have a certain kind of shoe. I, I looked at my shoes and I, I failed. I failed. I, I lost it. I, I didn't make the grade. <laughs> but it's okay. So this is the church growth pattern. We'll, we'll uh, move from here into the book of Acts a little bit further, uh, Lord willing, next week. Thanks for being here for our Sunday school hour, our Bible study hour, and thank you for the input. Let's close in prayer and then we'll get ready for the service. Lord, thank you for our time together already this morning. Pray that you will help us to remain faithful to this ordinary, normal pattern that is supernatural because we depend upon you instead of on ourselves. Help us to remain faithful to this, to these principles, to your commands. That, Lord, you might grow Berean spiritually, deepen our roots in the word of God and, and our love for you and our love for one another. And, Lord, as we do that, Lord, we would love to see more and see us grow numerically. But, Lord, uh, grow us in Christ's likeness, we pray. Bless now the service to follow, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
All right, thank you again for being here. We'll start the service in about 15 minutes.